hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci. We're uh, welcoming Barry Ritholtz to our podcast. Before we went live, I turned to Barry, told him I really had a limited understanding of the crisis and the bailout, even though I'm supposed to be a sophisticated financial services person, until I read this book. And so I have recommended this book to everybody I come in contact with. It's called Bailout Nation, How Greed and Easy Money Corrupted Wall Street and Shook the World's Economy. You really should read this book because it'll tell you a lot about where we are even today in terms of why we've had such a hard time digging out of the situation that we're in. It's very kind of you to say. So so, so I'm going to talk quickly and get right into questions, but I need to say a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, if you're listening to this for the first time, I'm really trying to invite guests on that are going to be unvarnished and talk about their success and failures and talk about the real world, how the real world works, as opposed to the sanitized, glossy magazine story or whatever sometimes some of the people in our businesses we both know they get to be successful and then all of a sudden they forget how they got there and they want to pretend that they did everything right uh and so we're trying to avoid that i'm the founder of skybridge capital i'm also the host of wall street week with my friend gary kaminsky uh the television show brought back uh to life after lewis rukeyser's passing uh, written three books. They're not as good as Bailout Nation, uh, but I wrote Goodbye Gordon Gecko, The Little Book of Hedge Funds, and I have a new book out this week, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole. And Ridholz just told me he's coming to my book party tomorrow night, That's which I'm thrill- thrilled by. And for you first-time listeners, uh, uh, I'm trying to keep it real. Both of us live on Long Island. Where do you live on Long Island? I live in Locust Valley. Locust Valley. Beautiful area of Long you're, Island. You're, you're, in, you're in all of uh, 15 minutes 15 minutes. Where'd you grow up? Grew up in Plainview, Long Island. Did you, did, go, to, did you go to Plainview JFK? Uh, my wife actually teaches there. Oh, no kidding. I went to Plainview High School, which is now closed. They merged into yeah, mer- JFK. Merged, merged into JFK. So yeah, before, I, before we go too far afield, yeah. I want to point out that when you were a guest on my podcast, yeah. you told an incredible story of personal failure and overcoming it, and I still get emails about that. Oh, so so no, you reference, and I've said to people time and again, we learn so much more from our failures than our successes. Your successes could be the result of luck. You think you're a genius. Well, I mean, you know, and, and, and to that point, and we were talking before we went live, my brother David told a very personal, honest story about overcoming drug addiction or staying in recovery mm-hmm. in three or four bouts of uh, rehab. And so I sort of think that, and he's doing phenomenal now, God bless him, knock on wood. I sort of think that one of the things that we have to do in the society, if we're doing well, and you've got a phenomenal business and you're a great television and radio personality, uh, to share this stuff with people. Tell them what's really going on behind the scenes, you know, how you got to where you are. And so so with that, I've got to to puff you up a little bit. So just don't say a word, okay? Okay. Prolific financial journalist, author, best-selling author, blogger. He was named... One of the 15 most important economic journalists in the United States. So you should really pay attention. He was also called one of the 25 most <laughs> dangerous people in financial media. So we're going to go with that a little bit. Dangerous. He owns a wealth management firm. He's got a radio show. I mentioned Bailout Nation. Uh, you should really toggle somewhere onto your smartphone and buy it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble. <clears throat> because I'm telling you, you'll learn a lot about the economy and how it works. Uh, and he's a friend. And what I mean by friend, I had a snafu last week. And ah, you're calling it a snafu. Yeah, yeah, no, no it was a kerfuffle. I had to twist your arm to say. No, no, it was a kerfuffle. But here's what happens. When the, 
liberal media is attacking you. You sort of want to own it. You don't want to get into too defensive mm-hmm. of a crash. We'll talk about that in a second. But you came to my defense, and I and I appreciate that. Well, because I knew what you meant, and yeah. I knew how it was going to be misinterpreted, right. and I knew those were two totally different things. And I appreciate that, because there's sometimes an arbitrage between how something gets said sure. or mentioned and spread to reality. But you're you're a good friend. You're you and and so He's many of your egg. so many of your friends say that about you that they're you're their three a.m. call. Uh, you have Bailed a, bl- a lot of people out of jail. You have a blog, one of the <laughs> first big finance blogs. You call it the Big Picture. Mm-hmm. You wrote you write about the financial crisis. You wrote about it before it was actually even happening. Mm-hmm. So tell our listeners and people watching on Facebook how did you smell it. Barry, how did you know that we were in trouble 2005, 6, and 7? So I, I grew up on Long Island. My father owned a small business. My mother was a real estate agent. Every night, residential. What, what was your dad's small business? Um, he had a store called Sneaker Stop, sporting goods, sneakers, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a second career. His first career, he was a uh, white-collar uh, headhunter and ended up, when we moved to Long Island, shifted gears and... Um, really taught me a lot about being a self-starter, being motivated, taking advantage of opportunities when they present themselves, being prepared for that. But mom was a real estate agent for 30 years, and it was always dinner table conversation. This one was doing that. Here are these prices. Here's what's going on with mortgages. So I always like to track certain data points and see how they're doing. And Probably the biggest screaming red flag from 01 to 04 was the drop in, in FOMC rates, the federal funds rates, down to 2% for, for three years, 1% for under 1% for more in, than a year. Induced by 9-11, or what do you think inducted so, that? Uh, it, was, it was three or four things. It was, it was the dot-com crash. It was the recession of 2001. Remember... By the time 9-11 came along, the recession had begun in March or April. Yeah, March. It was over by November. Right. So uh, I think Greenspan panicked and overreacted. You write that in the book. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, he, he liked the feeling the love of traders. I spend a lot of time on, on the Federal Reserve and, and Greenspan. And, and by the way, the book is a whole nother story. We can talk an hour about the book. But I never wanted to write this book. I was approached by... McGraw-Hill to write it. They, they actually had asked um, uh, Bill Fleckenstein, whose Greenspan's Bubbles, sure. had done really well. And you know after you're done writing a book, you're good for a while. Yeah, no, it's, it's a burnout. It, you're burning it, it, yourself so, out when you write the book. So um, are we allowed to curse on here or we have you to can, keep it? You, you can curse. So I'm, I'll keep it PG. Believe it or not, I, even though I'm the F-bomb maniac, yeah. I try not to curse All on right, so we'll, we'll keep it PG. You can do anything you want, baby. But, but <laughs> Fleckenstein told them, no thanks. <laughs> and they said, uh, McGraw-Hill asked him, well, who's covering this stuff? And he said, that's easy. Ritholtz has been screaming about Bear. It was after Bear Stearns. Hit, mm-hmm. uh, hit the skids. Mm-hmm. That's easy. Ritholtz has been screaming about this and Lehman and and um, the you other came financial. The first salt conference. You remember that? That was after the book. Yeah, Absolutely. The book. Yeah. I love that. Was a great conference. You got to come back. I man. sat. I back. sat on a panel with a whole bunch of really interesting people. I spoke at that panel, and then I recall you had Bill Clinton speak. Yeah, I did. I did. And he. I'll never forget this. I tell the story all the time. He walked into a room. What is that? Twenty five hundred people there, yeah. Yeah. and it was. It was. It was golf applause. It was right. a smat. The definition of right. a smattering of applause. 
no notes. He speaks extemporaneously for like 35, 40 minutes. Yeah. And then takes questions. And each question is a, each answer is a PhD dissertation. He walked out to a standing ovation. He did. And if before he walked off the stage, he would have said, and that's why I need a $100,000 check from each of you. He would have walked out of there with $25 million. No and, you know, and we Astonishing. Had, we had George W. Bush the year after. I'm sorry of, I missed that. I would have liked to yeah, see a that. lot of my liberal friends, oh, I don't want to see this guy. And then after he left, he said, wow, he really did give us an exposition of reality versus what you sometimes see through the prism of the media. Many but, of my liberal buddies have mm-hmm. said repeatedly, oh, this George W. Bush is dumb. And say what you want about him. His father is clearly brilliant. His brother's no dummy. Mm-hmm. I think people have, to borrow his own mm-hmm. um, malapropism, misunderestimated him. Yeah, no he question. is not a dumb he's guy. Not, he's not. A, I don't he's agree not with a lot of. Uh, I didn't like the guy, Iraq War, not but a, not a dumb guy. But let me tell you, you pressure. Yeah, sometimes you can make bad decisions. You, you, you are been called, and I'm going to get my voice low here. Low. One of them. Twenty-five most dangerous people in financial media. How's that for sound effects? Did I do okay? Not bad. Okay, not not bad. bad. Okay, so what's up with that? What happened? I don't. You know, I, I have a tendency to call bullshit when I see it. And you know, Jeff Mackey and and my partner Josh Brown's book about the clash of the mm-hmm. financial financial pundits. I lay out in much more detail than we have time to hear what that's about. But the simple truth is. There's a lot of nonsense that goes on in our industry, which is a profession with a proud history, and there's always been a handful of guys who have been yeah, overreaching no and damaged, damaged the brand. They, it's they so odd us. after this book where I pretty much trash everybody mm-hmm. that I find myself defending Wall Street because uh, AIG is a perfect example. 63,000 employees, 400 people in the financial products division – essentially destroyed the the entire company. And I don't know if those proportions are accurate throughout Wall Street, but it's a small percentage of people who engaged in really reckless behavior. I wish Elizabeth Warren would do the podcast, but my guess is she's not going to come in and do the podcast with me. I asked her before she was a senator to to do an interview before the podcast actually launched, and I would ask her again. Yeah. I, I think you got to wait till after the election to get her. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, I don't want her to see the street from a superficial view. That's what I love about you. You really try to, like, open up the hood, dig down, go into what the street is about. To, to answer the question of yours that I ducked, what was the big tell that alerted me? So it was not only the, um, uh, the really low rates— but if you looked at the historical relationship between median income and median home price, and for people watching on Periscope, it was like this for decades, and then suddenly it was vertical. And whatever way you chose to look at housing, cost of renting versus cost of ownership, uh, Ned Davis used to put out this thing where he looked at the value of the capital stock of homes in America as a percentage of GDP, same thing, sideways for half a century and then straight up. So when things get that out of hand, there's only one choice. Either, hey, we're all going to get rich, everybody's worth 10x, or the prices have to come crashing back to reality. Right. And, and we know what happened. Right. And so, so you, you had this unusual career path, though. Very much so. To get so. to where you are. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about that. So I started out Stony Brook University, undergraduate, um, applied mathematics and physics. In fact, when we went to look at schools in, in 1978, we went to Stony Brook. 
I met with a group of people, the outgoing math department chairman, some guy named Jim Simons, who if you... Uh, and so let's tell everybody who he is. He is one <laughs> of the legendary billionaire quant traders of Renaissance Technologies. Renaissance Technologies. If you met him... Stony Brook, he, he based his hedge fund out on Long Island. To talk it, yep. yep. If you met him, you wouldn't give him a penny. Like right. chain smoking, beard, <laughs> looked like a hippie. And I, right. I, I was like, years later, it took me a long time to figure out, wait, that guy is was that guy? So I, I did, I put about three and a half years into mathematics and physics, and I was pretty good, but there are people who are just amazing. And at a certain point, you realize, wow, I, I can't compete with these guys. These, uh, You know, math always came easy to me. Science always came easy to me. I didn't have to work that hard to get A's in high school in, in those subjects. And in college, it's a whole different game. And by the third year, it's like, oh, these people, they're really serious about this. So uh, my senior year switched to poli-sci, philosophy, Took a fifth year, ended up going to law school, because if you're a Jewish kid from Long Island <laughs> and you don't know what to do with yourself, right. what do you want to be? I don't know. Go to law school. I'm sure, and Italians or Jews are no, essentially about it. the same people. My parents would thought, I mean, my, I thought my mother was going to go nuclear when I told her I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I was heading for Goldman Sachs. She goes, is that a law firm? <laughs> I'm like, no. Oh, my God, this is terrible. It worked out okay. It worked out okay, but they didn't really know, you know? That's hilarious. So... so out of, out of, you are certainly aware, I loved law school. You know what, the mm -hmm. intellectual challenges of law school, it's fascinating mm -hmm. stuff. So we talked about that when I came on yeah. your show. But actually, the practice of law, it's a grind. And for you and I, it would not be the right no, job. Absolutely not. Buddies of mine I went to law school with, phenomenal. You know what I mean? But I had, um, when the opportunity came to become a trader, I jumped on it. was a trader for a while, then I became a, a, a researcher, strategist. Mm -hmm. And ultimately decided. Well, I wasn't trading for you because we did a little bit of research on you before. I love trading. You. Maybe you a said little. It wasn't for you though. Well, no, no, I... it was for me. I love trading. Maybe a little too much, and I was fortunate okay, enough so you, that you were... yeah, I had I had the okay. needle in the arm all the time, and it was very much an addictive adrenaline ride. Right. And if you have to just decide, are you doing this for shits and giggles? Or are you doing this because? You're going to earn a living, and to earn a living at it, you have to be really disciplined. You have to have a, have a set of, of rules, and you have to follow them, and that will make you less money, but it's much less fun. You, you did you did something that, uh, listen, I always admire, okay? You started your own firm. Mm -hmm. uh, you got the legendary downtown Josh Brown in the firm with you. What, uh, one of my and, great discoveries. And you... You went into wealth management mm -hmm. at a time when wealth management is under pressure. Is that fair to say? I feel it. Um, so I don't tell know. us about the decision to go into business. Tell us about the decision to be an entrepreneur. How did it all unfold for you? So I had spent most of my career not accepting money from people because I was afraid it would compromise my objectivity. And um, uh, there's a whole long story as to how I suddenly realized, gee, there's a lot of uh, reputational risk and maybe even actual liability, just referring people to third parties, not getting paid for it, just sending people elsewhere. Hey, this guy's pretty good at muni bonds. That guy's pretty good at, at, at private equity. Just it, it became clear to me, gee, that's all downside, no upside. What are you doing? And so enough people had said, would you please, here, here's $2 million. Please take money from us. Um, when I had met Josh some years ago at a conference, 
Uh, he was on the sell side. He wanted to get on the buy side. I said, come join, join us. At a certain point, the two of us said, hey, you know, we can turn this into a real business. We launched three years ago, September, with less than $100 million. We're well over 400. You know, I, I'm hoping to hit half a billion before the year is up. Congratulations. But, it, but it's been a, like, really... So it's a fee-based registered investment Just advisor. straight Let's up RIA. Straight our up our RIA. fees average about 0.7% across the whole firm. So it's financial planning, asset management, and a whole slew of other that, services. That, well, I listen. I love Josh. I mean, one of the things that I miss about CNBC mm-hmm. is the talent at CNBC, whether it's Scott Wapner's or the guy at Dami's or the Josh Carl Browns. Carl Cantania's stuff Carl, is... Carl, Carl is a t- l- tremendous I love him on, on Twitter. The good, the good news for me is I get to travel once in a while with these guys or go on vacation with them, and so that's fun for me. And uh, so I give a big shout-out to your partner. I think he's a terrific guy. I he, actually was talking to him today. Believe it or not, we I don't watch the show every day. I can't. I mean, it's the middle right. of the day when right, we're right. and today it just worked out because of of this. I was at my desk during lunch, so I watched it, and I said to him, "I go." He came back to to the office today. I'm like, "Dude, can I? If I haven't said this to you recently, it's like four guys and you. He is just right. so Pistol. on the ball, on so fire. funny. And how many people are funny like that?" In the world of finance, it, it's yeah. pretty unique, and that's why he's so talented. That's why people are gravitating to him. You, 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 and I may agree on this or may not, because I don't really know your view. I'm going to give you my view. Okay, I believe that people are being forced into index strategies at the top of the market, ETFs, indexes, low cost uh, indexes, uh, the DOL ruling, which we couldn't talk about if you want. We don't sure. necessarily have to. I think that's going to be a negative for people in the long run, that they're going to be pushed away from non-correlative assets right as interest rates are starting to normalize. What are your thoughts on that? What do you say to your clients? So we were at a, a, B, a hybrid BDRIA before we launched our own, and we looked into the various structures we wanted to do. We could have done it as a private partnership. We could have done it as a broker-dealer. And the appeal of the investment advisory structure was that there is already a fiduciary rule built in. And it just made life so much easier from a management perspective. I, I, not to interrupt you, but I want to say that you know, there are so many fiduciary standards and so many fiduciary rules. Why do we need another one? I mean, that's just, it's just well, another here's this, redundancy here the, here are your of two nonsense. choices. You're, you're on a broker-dealer side, it's the suitability standard, right. which I'm fond of saying... Hey, don't don't sell um, don't sell the Nintendo IPO to Grandma. That's mm-hmm. the suitability standard. Right. The fiduciary standard, to boil it down to its simplest state, is what's in the best interest of the client. If right. this isn't in the client's best interest, then don't do it. It made compliance easy. It made creating portfolios easier. It made every conflicted question that everybody who's ever been on a sell side shop had to deal with. They all went away. It, it, it simply made, you know, when you're on the same side of the table as the client, and does it create a potential uh, situation where you are, gee, I'm not going to recommend X, Y, and Z because I'm not going to get paid for it. I, I don't see the downside of that. If a client wants to do a private equity investment and they ask us about it, you know, we'll say, I'll say to people, I'll look at it, but understand, no, but, but, we don't want to get paid in that for new it. Department of Labor rule, there's an impulse inside the rule that basically says, okay, listen, here's your menu of uh, investment ideas. Mm-hmm. Here's my recommendations. If one of those recommendations has to be happens to be higher feed, 
and it's in the pool, and then the person does it, and for whatever reason it doesn't work out, then you could potentially be on the hook Yes in and no. The fiduciary. Well, so if you have a reasonable, rational really basis, toughly interpreted, Barry, you if you that. have a rational basis for saying, look, eighty percent. So our portfolio is about eighty percent global, low cost asset allocation indexes. But then we have another twenty percent that's um, a more tactical, and there's a really definable basis for that, which is the tactical portion of the portfolio is designed to keep people's real money, the 80%, invested. and Because mm-hmm. we don't believe anybody is consistently timing the market, jumping right. in and out, in net of fees, net of, for, their, for their long-term retirement money. Now, if you want to set up a separate account and if you want to participate in choosing managers or selecting stocks or, or, or putting money into hedge funds and private mm-hmm. equity, hey, God bless you if you want to do that. But make sure... Your, your kid's college are paid for, make sure whatever generational wealth I'm, transfer again, you have. I'm just talking about that 20% piece where I think it helps people. It helps them stay. One of the biggest things you can do as a wealth manager or I can do as a person in this it's industry. behavior. Exactly. And we're going to get to that in a second. It's, it's, it's mental conditioning because people have short-term memory. They're all long-term investors until they have short-term right. losses. And one of the great things that you do is you incorporate – into the economic data and the securities analysis, behavioral finance. So let's talk it, a little bit about It's a must. In that. fact, if you look at the, the Wall Street Journal just had a really interesting article, Investing by Decades. And one of the charts on that showed how much cash people are carrying in their portfolios. You're a millennial. You have 50 years before you're retiring. Why do you have 60% cash in your portfolio? <laughs> that is nothing but recency effect of the crisis and people just feeling that emotional memory, feeling that wounds. It, I call, I've been calling it, you know, post-crash uh, traumatic stress yeah, disorder. Post-economic stress syndrome. I've, heard, it's I've not, heard you say it. it. It's really like people are that mentally screwed up from the crisis. So there's a ton of people underinvested. Mm-hmm. By the way, market up 263% uh, from the lows. If you're carrying, forget 63%, you're carrying 35% cash. You're getting killed. You're, yeah. you're just leaving so much money on the in table. In this low growth environment, the opportunity cost. What low not growth? Two hundred sixty-three percent over seven years is a fantastic. No, no, I'm, talking uh, about, I'm talking about. Let me rephrase it. Not low growth. The low economic. interest rate environment. Right. I'm sorry. So, I meant to say interest. So rates. you're in a low interest rate environment. Maybe you want to tilt. If you're a normal sixty forty guy, maybe you go seventy thirty or eighty twenty. Meanwhile, people have been calling for the end of the mm-hmm. bond market now for right. Forever, and they get ripped. They get their heads ripped off. Right. I, I think we're pretty much if we're we're pretty close to the end of the bond market that began in 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel the need to forecast that because there's no upside for me. In fact, I've been a critic of of the obsession with forecasting because a as as a species we suck at it, mm-hmm. and b there's a tendency to marry into those forecasts, which basically has people. And Ned Davis wrote a great book on this. It has people more concerned with proving themselves right than right. making money. Right. Selection bias to make them confirmation, confirmation bias, optimism bias, bias exactly. hindsight bias. So, There's a run of stuff that's just astonishing. So now that we just got done uh, crapping all over forecasting, what are your thoughts on the election? So here's the way I've been looking at it, and I think it's kind of kind of fascinating. 
Assume Trump wins all of the states, Mitt Romney wins. The question in 2012. In, in 2012. The question I have for um, Kellyanne Conway and his own internal uh, polling people, what percentage of Romney voters are going to stay home this election? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is more than two or three, he's toast. If the answer is four, five, six percent, the Democrats probably grab six or seven seats in the Senate and control the Senate switches. In order for them to win the House, you would need 20 percent of Romney voters to stay home. And then you'll see like a 32 seat switch. We we haven't seen anything like that since 2010. That's a real long shot. That would be a real, you know, once in a generation. Ronald Reagan was the last person who did that. And I don't really think Hillary Clinton is Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And listen, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I guess the only thing I would add is, and I don't want to talk for Kellyanne Conway, but there is several million voters Mm -hmm. in each of these states that are registered, many of them which are white and uneducated, meaning Mm -hmm. they don't have college degrees. Uh, One and a half million of those in the state of Pennsylvania did not vote in 2008, did not vote in 2012. And so the thought here is some of those voters could be energized by the Trump movement. Perhaps. and, and, And they're not necessarily being factored into the polling data. Now, we can argue about the polls or not. I'm in Sean Hannity's camp on the polls. I think the polls are accurate. So I'm, I'm not one of these guys who say they're not. I say there could be some oversampling. We saw that at WikiLeaks. Right. I said that on one of the TV shows. But I, I, I do think that Mr. Trump is behind as it relates to the polls. So now the question is, is there a Brexit situation that happens? Is there some Trump shaming? Is there a group of the population that didn't vote in 08 and 12 to come out and vote for him and put him into the presidency. So we'll know that's that a on really, November 8th. That, I don't know. Well, on the 9th, anyway. 9th, I mean, 9th. Um, I, you know, here's the issue why it's probably not a Brexit situation. First, there's an electoral college. Remember, the modern Democrats, I'm, I say this as a political independent. When I was in a New York City resident, I was a registered Democrat because the primaries were the only thing that mattered. Before I moved into the city, I was a measured, registered Republican because in Nassau County, the primaries were the only thing that mattered. And now I'm an independent. The modern era has Democrats starting the race two years ago with about 248 electoral college votes. 240 is what Rove said. Yes, okay, but somewhere that. in that range. No, so, you know, big disadvantage for a Republican right. in a presidential And, and uh, demographics uh, are going against the, the... Yeah, the Republican Party has to wise up and open that tent. And you I, thought after 2012, I forgot the woman who wrote the report, wrote this brilliant report mm-hmm. about we have to capture millennials, we have to capture Hispanics, we're not doing this, we're failing this. She basically just dropped her affiliation as a Republican. I can't remember her name. Yep. Um, I, I don't remember. But but here's the key takeaway. The GOP were not big fans of Barack Obama. So the question is, is Barack Obama's re-election campaign, and, and now he's got, you know, really high approval ratings. Go back to 2012. His approval, he was under 50%. He looked very beatable. Mm -hmm. And in fact, maybe Romney was the, you know, a billionaire private equity guy probably is the wrong voice in the midst of an economic recovery that's really slow with lagging unemployment and lagging wages. Probably the wrong messenger. 
But I think Obama was a very beatable sitting president yeah. in 2012. And if that base you talked about couldn't get motivated to defeat a president who was widely – look, he was uh, – the the independents were so-so. The, the Republican right and the hard right despised this guy. Yeah. If that didn't motivate that million and a half folks in, right. in 2012, at this point – look, uh, compared to – Trump, I think Romney is a statesman these days. He comes yeah. across as, I love, I love if Romney ran this time, mm-hmm. I think Romney would have won. Well, the question is, could he have beaten Trump in the primary? You know, my my, my he might th- have. He might have. I I don't know, but I and I and I have a lot of respect for Governor Romney. I do think, however, and I'm not here defending him. I and I can show you statistically, and I don't have the charts, but in a rising economy since 1900, mm-hmm. if the economy is growing, GDP is growing. An incumbent president has not been beaten. Right. And, uh, and you it's know— It's only happened a few times, and it's usually during a recession. George Herbert Walker Bush, during a recession— Which was over. The recession James was Earl over Carter. already. People it, just hadn't realized it. It was, it. but they hadn't realized it. Exactly. That's that but, recency but effect they're looking backwards. Recency effect. So, so, so to me—and again, I'm not here apologizing or defending Governor Romney, although I do re- respect him a great deal. I think his task was almost insurmountable. And, and by the way— if uh, Secretary Clinton wins and she goes on to have four years of the president, if we're in a recession, she's going to get beat. She's going to have a if really hard time. That's not in a recession. Case. You know what? They're going to have a hard time beating her. And that that's the facts. So know? here's, and here's the, the same thing if it was the if President Trump. Here's the thing about Trump that I think people are just overlooking. When he was running for the primary, him against 16 people, he was a master of that format no of question. Tell. Nobody was even close. And then no the one-on-one format is much – his skills are much less suited to that yeah, than it is the big stage with a lot of people and a lot of – he was a chaos candidate my, and he was my, a genius at it. My, my, my wife was like, what, what do you think his nickname would have been for you if you were on that set? It would have been a little Anthony, little Anthony in the Imperials. I mean, come on. Not the Mooch. Right, he so, wouldn't have gone well, with the Mooch. He would have called me the Mooch, That's too. That's the obvious know. one. I don't know what he would have done, but I know he, he would have been coming at me like a Comanche. So tell <laughs> us about your radio show, Masters in Business, which I have been honored to be a guest of. So uh, Bloomberg asked me to write for them a couple of years ago, and I've been writing a daily – I've been curating the daily set of reads and doing a column three or four days a week for them. And when they were, you know, showing me around the place, it was this really – you've been in that building. Love it. It's, it's an incredible building. It's purpose-built for technology and data and news. There's, there's really I've – I've been to Fox. I've been to CNBC. I've been to CNN. This building is, like, purpose-built. No, he's the man. It, it's he's amazing. Man. I love him. He also knows how to feature. He's like Jewish grandmother. I'm sure he's a Jewish <laughs> grandfather, too. But we do that here. You know, that's why I love them because I'm basically a Jewish grandmother. It says, I feed everybody. You go to Bloomberg, you get the Bloomberg 15. The food right? is yeah. all there, right? You're wolfing the food. I'm eating standing up on the sixth floor. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not going to fit And, in and that suit. food rotates all the time. I call it yeah. Google East. It's like yeah. every, food is changing constantly. So when they He's said to me. He's a model for all of us, the guy. Uh, look, and, you know, they crunch numbers like nobody's. They figured out we have 6,000 employees in this building. What's it? What is the productivity loss of 6,000 people going out every time they want a cup of coffee, a snack, a lunch? What could it possibly cost them to serve that? A few million dollars? They're a multi-billion dollar. It's like Skybridge is like McDonald's, okay? We have hundreds of thousands of meals served, okay? So, so, but but this show is really caught on. You got, I mean, I'm not, I'm minimizing myself. I'm talking about, I've I've listened to your show. I have a subscription. You got 
big time guest. So it started. So when uh, you'll appreciate this part of it, when they said to me at Bloomberg, "Hey, what would you like to do? We have this fantastic facility. Would you like to do a TV show? Would you like to?" And and my response was, "You know, I've been doing TV for a decade." I did Cudlow and Kramer on as a regular basis. Then right. I was doing Fast Cudlow money, twice there. a yep. week. But mm-hmm. Cudlow was a regular gig twice sure. a week for years. And I said, the my problem with financial TV is it's too fast. It's what's the Fed going to do? Where's the Dow going to be in a year? Right. You Tell know, me about Netflix. Right. What's your Tell favorite stuff? So they said, what do you want to do? And, and my response was, I want to find successful, accomplished people and find out how they got that way. And to my amusement and, and surprise, they said, all right, go ahead, go do that. It was sort of, here's some rope, kid, don't hurt Great. yourself. Love and it. so we recorded the first 20 shows before it ever broadcast. And um, so it was really a Skunk Works project that was sort of behind the scenes. I pretty much exhausted my Rolodex with people like David Rosenberg, people I had known either when they were famous or before they were famous and pulled in a fa- Ed Yardini and Laszlo Barini and, mm-hmm. and David Kotak and Jonathan mm-hmm. Miller and Jeff Gunlock. Jeff Gunlock was a, was at then had exploded and become huge, but I had known him for a while. And so when we started feeding these out with 20 in the can, I was every week the head of radio would sit me down and say, all right, here's what, what's wrong with this and here's what you're doing. Wrong. And so that that went on for about six months. And one day he pulls me aside and says, um, hey, you know, I pulled into Home Depot to get something, and I just was sitting in the car listening, and it was compelling. I couldn't couldn't get out. And I'm so like, awesome. all right, well, but where did I screw up? Tell me. He's like, no, no, that what you got it. You, you, you figured it out. But the fascinating thing about the idea of the show is the the logo is no stock picks, no no predictions. Yeah. Because, so, uh, you know, if I have Cliff Asness or Bill Miller sure. or, or, or Bill McNabb, I don't want to ask what their favorite stock is for the next 15 minutes. Hey, Bill Miller, you've had a 15-year streak yeah, of beating the it. S&P 500. Unprecedented. How'd you do it? Was it, it skill? Was it luck? What was the basis of this? So People you- don't get to talk about those sort of things. And I found, you know, Michael Mobison is this unknown Guys, that chief strategist at Credit Suisse, a rock star, yeah. people are finally figuring out who this guy is. Tell me the difference between skill and luck and stock picking. So, so I, I have to let you go, but the crystallization, the essence of the success that the people that you've interviewed is what? Is there a common thread? Among yeah, there's a, there's a few things that come up time and again. Uh, obviously, hard work is, is uh, that's just the cost of admission to being in the arena. The, the two things I've heard from people over and over and over again, one is never under, underestimate the role of luck, serendipity. Just, I say that all right? the time. It, uh, I've had people from, uh, you name it, uh, Bill Gross. So, you know, you got to realize how sometimes you got to get lucky. Now, there's also this subtext. It ha- you have to, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. You have to be trained and ready to go when 100%. that comes along. The other thing that comes up, and I've turned this into a question I ask every guest, the power of reading books and the ability to learn from some of the smartest people in our industry in the world is not to be underestimated. Right. And, and I think that's a, a really, really significant— so read more. 
Re- read, you know, we yeah. read a lot of junk. We read yeah. a lot of newspaper, a lot of yeah, magazines. Yeah, yeah. Twitter. We, uh, Twitter, uh, quarterly reports, research. A lot of that stuff is very ephemeral. When you could take a guy like Howard Marks, another guest, or, or Michael Mobison, another guest, mm-hmm. or Charlie Munger, yep. who I literally just sent a piece of snail mail to, <laughs> uh, and you could read what they've built up a school of thought, a philosophy, and it stood the test of time and proven to be successful over an entire lifetime. And then they say, I'm going to take a year to write down exactly what I did. How do you not pick up Howard Marks's book yeah, I'm in. and and I read it? And, so, so and it's a big lesson all you listeners out there. You got to read. Milken said to me, I said, how, how many hours a day do you read? He said, well, I'm up probably 18. I really try to read 12, but I'm wow. probably getting in six to eight. I looked at him. I said, I got to start reading more. My Buffett God. has said the same thing. Same he thing. says he spends half his day reading books. Well, well I, I got to tell you, I love you. I got to get you <laughs> back here. You're coming to my book party tomorrow we night. We didn't get a chance to talk about your... Snafu My that snafu. we wanted gonna, to just. Dis- we'll talk about it next time. But in, in brief, <laughs> I said something that I regret. It was a stupid way to describe it. Then the journalist nailed me with it. So then I said, I'm going to own it because I right. don't want to be one of those shamed by the liberal left and so forth. And you were very kind to me. And so. The, well, the I knew of, exactly the, what you were referring to something that is shorthand amongst lawyers and law students yeah, for bad policy for by bad government. decision making bad judgment was it, it it became a racially charged no thing there was nothing racial stupid. about that so, other you, than the 120 year old case that was you, the you defended the me. reference you defended me and i love you for it it's a pleasure <laughs> to have you on here well thank uh, you for having and me and follow mr riddles at, at riddles i love that and buy Barry's book, Bailout Nation. He's going to write another one, I'm sure. I got three right, three in the chamber. I have to just finish them. From right now, it's fantastic. Subscribe, please, to this podcast. Find Barry's podcast, Master of Business. Subscribe to that, which I do. And you can follow me at, at Scaramucci. Don't forget to watch Wall Street Week. If you don't like the show, please put it on in your spare bedroom. I get the ratings anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, and, and if you have a Nielsen box, please call me. There's flowers coming your can way. You, can you stream the show? I don't think we can do that yet. We're you should do on that. It. We're working on this it. internet thing's going to be big yeah. one day. You can actually stream it if you have a direct TV box or uh-huh. a, a cable box, but that's the only way. We're, we're working on it. But in any event, have a prosperous week. And Barry, thank you for being here. My Bye. pleasure. Bye.